baseball fans, I'm Matt Russell, and this is Three Strikes, You're Out, the Baseball History Podcast. I am really excited to bring you this two-part show on one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Known by the colorful and accurate nicknames The Franchise and Tom Terrific, Tom Seaver won the National League Rookie of the Year Award in 1967 and was a huge part of bringing the New York Mets their first world championship in 1969. This fantastic pitcher was a 12-time All-Star, won three National League Cy Young Awards, and is the Mets' all-time leader in wins. And that just begins the list of the pitching records he has. The great Hank Aaron once stated that Tom Seaver was the toughest pitcher he ever faced. How was that for a compliment? Add to the list that he was also a down-to-earth and decent man, and you just have to admire and love the great Tom Seaver. This episode is part one of two and documents Tom Seaver's career to just before the 1973 World Series. So, let's get to it! Batter up! Tom Seaver was a right-handed pitcher who played for the New York Mets, the Cincinnati Reds, the Chicago White Sox, and the Boston Red Sox from 1967 through 1986. During his 22 seasons, he was a pitching sensation, striking out 200 or more batters in nine straight seasons from 1968 through 1976, which is still a record to this day. He also holds a major league record for his feat of striking out 10 consecutive batters. He had 16 opening day starts, which is also an MLB record. And only Tom Seaver and the great Walter Johnson retired with a combination of 300 wins, 3,000 strikeouts, and an earned run average under three. In my opinion, you have to put Tom Seaver on the list of the top 10 pitchers of all time. Among his many, many accomplishments, he was the National League Rookie of the Year in 1967. He was a 12-time All-Star. He won three National League Cy Young Awards in 1969, 1973, and 1975. He was a World Series champion with the New York Mets in 1969. He threw a no-hitter in 1978. He had 16 opening day starts over his 22-year career. He has the record for striking out the most hitters in a row with 10. He was the National League leader in strikeouts five times. He led the National League in earned run average three times in 1970, 1971, and 1973. He won 20 or more games in a season five times. He holds the record for consecutive 200 strikeout seasons with nine. He is only one of two players to reach 300 wins, 3,000 strikeouts, and an earned run average under three in their career. And he was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1992 with the highest percentage of votes, 98.84%, up to that time. George Thomas Seaver was born on November 17, 1944, in Fresno, California. His father, Charles Seaver Sr., was an executive with a raisin packing company. His mother, Betty, was a homemaker. Sports were an important part of the Seaver family. Tom's dad was a fine amateur golfer. In fact, he was the Stanford University champion in 1932 and was on the Walker Cup team captained by Francis Wimay that same year. He had a two handicap and kept that up until at least Tom's rookie year in 1967. Tom's mother was also a good golfer. His Aunt Katie was an excellent surfer who surfed often in Hawaii. Tom's oldest sister, Katie, was a good swimmer and volleyball player at Stanford. 
His brother, Charles Jr., swam for one year for the UC Berkeley varsity team. His other sister, Carol, was a physical education major at UCLA, so it was no shock that Tom, the youngest of the family, was a fine athlete. Seaver played in the Fresno Little League at the age of nine as a pitcher and outfielder. Within three years, he had pitched a perfect game while batting an excellent 540. Later, Seaver pitched for Fresno High, a school that had already graduated some outstanding pitchers, including Jim Maloney, Dick Ellsworth, and Dick Selma. All three went on to have significant MLB careers. Selma, who later played with Seaver on the Mets, remembered, quote, Even in high school, Tom was a thinking pitcher. He knew how to set up a hitter by working the corners of the plate, and the batter would usually pop the ball for an easy out, unquote. After graduating from high school in 1962, Seaver registered at Fresno City College while working in the raisin industry. While a student, he also put in training time in the Marines. Scouts had begun to notice his pitching after his second year, when he won 11 consecutive games while setting numerous school strikeout records. So did Rod Dadeau, the legendary baseball coach who led the University of Southern California to 11 college World Series titles. Dadeau asked Seaver to join the Trojans for his junior year. To prove his reputation and earn his scholarship, Seaver went to Alaska to pitch for the semi-pro Gold Panners. At USC in 1965, Seaver went 10-2, striking out 100 batters in 100 innings. Although only one major league team scouted Seaver in 1965, the Atlanta Braves wasted no time the following year, drafting him in January and signing him a month later. The Braves had been Seaver's team of choice growing up in Fresno. Hank Aaron was his hero, and as he told interviewer Marty Appel, quote, I loved their uniforms, and I loved their hitters. Aaron, Eddie Matthews, Joe Adcock, unquote. But as much as he loved the Braves, Seaver never wore their uniform for an inning of his professional career. Major League rules prevented any organization from signing a college player while his season was in progress. Although Seaver had yet to pitch in 1966, the USC season was underway when the Braves signed their right-handed prospect. Commissioner William Eckert voided Seaver's contract with the Braves on March 2nd. If other teams matched Atlanta's offer of $51,500, they would participate in a lottery for Seaver's services. Three teams, the Indians, the Phillies, and the Mets, stepped forward with contractual offers. The lottery was conducted on April 3rd as each organization had its name thrown into a hat. The winning team was baseball's losingest team, the lowly New York Mets. Seaver earned a bonus contract worth $10,000 more than the Braves offer and began his professional career with Jacksonville in the International League. Seaver went 12-12, throwing four shutouts and striking out 188 hitters. Jacksonville manager Solly Hemus was overwhelmed by his pupil's talent and poise, insisting that his, quote, 35-year-old head attached to a 21-year-old body, unquote, was ready for the big leagues. Earl Weaver, then managing the Orioles affiliate at Rochester, agreed with Hemus from the visiting dugout, saying, quote, It was apparent in Tom Seaver's pro debut that he was ready for the majors. He had an excellent fastball and slider, and he put them precisely where he wanted to, in and out on the black of the plate, mostly knee-high. After Jacksonville beat us, I phoned general manager Harry Dalton and said that Seaver was going to be sensational, and the Orioles could give up a piece of the franchise and do well to get him, unquote. The New York Mets had never won more than 66 games or finished higher than in ninth place since coming into existence in 1962. 
Under new general manager Bing Devine, the Mets underwent an overhaul. One of the new faces in New York in 1967, true to Hemus's prediction, was Tom Seaver. His baptism into the major leagues for manager Wes Westrom occurred in the second day of the season, April 13th, as he yielded six hits to the Pittsburgh Pirates in five and a third innings with eight strikeouts and four walks. Seaver gave up just two runs as the Mets won 3-2. By July, Seaver's record was 6-4 with a 2.60 ERA, gaining him a spot on the National League All-Star team. At one point before the game, Seaver's hero, Hank Aaron, introduced himself to Seaver and said, quote, Kid, I know who you are, and before your career is over, I guarantee you everyone in this stadium will too, unquote. It would not be very long at all before Aaron's prophecy came true. The 1967 All-Star Game was played at Anaheim Stadium and was tied at 1-1 after 14 innings. But Tony Perez homered in the top of the 15th to give the National League a 2-1 lead, and manager Walter Alston gave Seaver the ball to shut down the American League team. On that night, a nationally televised audience was introduced to a rookie that pitched like a seasoned pro. Seaver got Red Sox star Tony Canigliaro to fly out before walking eventual Triple Crown winner Carl Yastrzemski. After Bill Freehand flied out, Seaver ended the game by striking out Ken Berry on a high fastball. Tom Terrific had very quickly fulfilled Hammer and Hank's prophecy and was on his way towards greatness. Seaver rewrote the Mets' pitching record book in 1967. It wasn't hard given the Mets still finished the season in last place in the National League with 60 victories and 101 defeats, but his 16 victories, 18 complete games, 170 strikeouts, and an excellent 2.76 ERA set new marks for the club. He also became the first Met in history to earn the National League Rookie of the Year award. Seaver was already drawing comparisons to Christy Mathewson as the best right-handed pitcher of his generation to play for a New York team. As for Bill Bartolome, whose Braves were 0-4 against Seaver in 1967, all he could muster in light of the near-miss acquiring Seaver was, quote, I get sick every time I watch him pitch, unquote. As Mets broadcaster Howie Rose later reminisced to author Bruce Markison, Seaver brought a sense of hope that was absent from previous Mets teams. Before he joined the Mets, Rose said, quote, there was this inescapable culture of losing, unquote. For fans, there was also a growing sense that losing was going to be a permanent thing. Rose added, quote, People who watched Seaver as a rookie got the sense that they had finally developed a player who was capable of doing special things, and therefore capable of helping the Mets achieve some pretty good things of their own along the way, unquote. Another quality Seaver became known for was poise. He never became rattled in games and took things in stride. He said himself, quote, I don't find myself jumping up and down. I smile, but that's as far as I let my emotions carry me, unquote. He was also a soft-spoken gentleman who would sign endless autographs for fans, answer repetitious questions by reporters, and accepted wisecracks from his teammates, all without complaint. In other words, this pitching superstar was simply a nice guy. Seaver was not affected by a sophomore jinx in 1968. He won 14 games, struck out 205, and committed only one error all season. The Mets were getting better as a club. They had a great catcher in Jerry Grody, and acquired Tommy Agee to play center field. They had an excellent shortstop in Bud Harrelson, and they had built a great pitching staff with Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, 
and young fireballer Nolan Ryan as their mainstays. But few suspected what 1969 would bring for the Mets. The 1969 season got off to a slow start. On opening day, April 8th, broadcaster Ralph Kiner remembered Seaver, quote, getting knocked out of the box, unquote, by the expansion Montreal Expos, who defeated the Mets 11-10. The following weeks were no better for the Mets. Injuries, slumps, erratic defensive play, and a lack of experience all prevented them from advancing into a higher bracket in the National League East. In May, Hodges even told reporter Jack Lang that his hitters, quote, looked like wooden soldiers, unquote. But on May 21st in Atlanta, Seaver shut out the Braves to improve his record to 6-2. Meanwhile, the Mets had evened their record to 18-18. But to Seaver, this was no cause for celebration. He considered the 500 mark as, quote, neither here nor there, unquote, and said that having a 500 record isn't going to get us very close to the pennant. But as Ralph Kiner mentioned in his 2005 memoir, Seaver's role as a motivator came to the fore, pushing the Mets to heights they had no right to expect in 1969. Kiner remembered, quote, Tom Seaver was the driving force behind the players, always pushing the team to be better than they were, never letting them settle, unquote. The Mets had an 11-game winning streak in late May and early June. Each player contributed, which boosted their confidence. For Seaver, it was an extra-inning clutch hit to win a June 4th game against the Dodgers that really got him going. Seaver said, quote, We were in a scoreless game until the 15th inning. Then Wayne Garrett hit a ball up the middle with A.G. on second. There was going to be a close play at the plate. Willie Davis came charging in and the ball was under his glove. The winning run scored. There was real electricity, unquote. The Mets players were now believing that they could win. By now, the Mets were in second place behind the Chicago Cubs. When Seaver defeated the Padres on June 14th, he improved his record to 10-3. The Mets pitching with Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Don Cardwell, and rookie Gary Gentry was becoming highly regarded around the league. Seaver claimed that a greatly improved defense was equally important, quote, especially up the middle with Grody, Harrelson, and Ken Boswell, and A.G. in center field, unquote. The Mets upgraded their offense on June 15th when they acquired Don Clendenin in a trade with Montreal. He, along with third baseman Ed Charles, became clubhouse leaders for the Mets. With great pitching and defense, solid offense, a hard-nosed manager, clubhouse chemistry, and confident players, the Mets had only the Cubs standing in their way for a division title. This set the stage for what was arguably the strongest game Seaver ever pitched. It certainly is the best-remembered Seaver game, even more than his no-hitter he pitched for Cincinnati in 1978. The Cubs, leading the division by four games, were visiting the Mets at Shea Stadium on July 9, 1969. Among the 50,709 fans that packed into the stands was Tom's dad, who had flown in from California on business. The younger Seaver had not even been certain he could pitch that evening due to his sore shoulder, but his pitches early on surpassed even his own perfectionist standards. The Mets had a 3-0 lead in the third inning, and no Chicago hitter had even reached base. Remembered Seaver, quote, Emotionally, I was fully aware of what was going on. I came to bat and got this incredible standing ovation in the sixth inning. I felt as if I was almost levitating, unquote. Eighteen Cubs batters had come to the plate. Eighteen returned without a hit to the dugout. The Mets fans were glued to the edges of their seats both at Shea and on WOR-TV as Seaver continued to baffle the Cubs. 
The Cubs' Don Kessinger led off the seventh inning by flying out to left. Glenn Beckert flied out the opposite way before Billy Williams ended the inning with a ground out to third base. Seaver was equally masterful in the eighth inning. After Ron Santo flied out to center field, Tom Terrific fanned Ernie Banks and Al Spangler for his 10th and 11th strikeouts of the night. 24 up, 24 down. In 1964, Jim Bunning had thrown the first National League perfect game since 1888 at Shea Stadium for the Phillies. Now, it seemed like the feat would be repeated as Seaver took the mound for the top of the ninth. The inning began with a heart-stopping play as Randy Hundley led off with a line drive to the pitcher's mound. Seaver trapped it and tossed Hundley out at first base. And into the batter's box stepped an obscure rookie outfielder named Jim Qualls. Qualls already had two sharply hit balls off of Seaver that night. The pitcher remembered thinking that, quote, if anybody gets a hit off me tonight, it would be this guy, unquote. Unfortunately, Seaver was right. He threw an outside pitch to the left-handed hitter, and Qualls slashed a clean base hit to shallow left field. The perfect game was over, and the, quote, imperfect game, unquote, became a part of Mets lore. A consummate professional, Seaver retired the last two batters and threw the first of his club record five one-hitters. The Mets won four to nothing, defeating the front-running Cubs in the most crucial game of the season to that point. All of baseball now knew that the Mets were for real. Although the Mets and Seaver faded in late July, the third-place Cardinals could not capitalize and failed to overtake them in the standings. Then, in August, the Mets were dealt a tough test of endurance. 20 games in 20 days, including four doubleheaders against three California teams. Many teams would have knuckled under to the exhausting schedule, but the Mets went 15-5. and five. Seaver won three games during their California swing and improved his record to 19-7. and seven. He had not lost since August 5th when he dropped a decision to Cincinnati's Gary Nolan and would be perfect in his final six decisions. The Mets took sole position of first place on September 19th and captured the division title five days later. Leading the Mets staff with an excellent 25 wins, Seaver was given the starting assignment for Game 1 of the National League Championship Series against the Atlanta Braves. The Braves, behind their ace Phil Necro, jumped on Seaver for five runs on eight hits in seven innings. But the Mets, trailing by one in the eighth, rallied for five runs to preserve the victory for Seaver. The Mets easily disposed of the heavily favored Braves by winning the next two games, claiming a spot in the World Series against Baltimore. Despite the best overall record in the National League, the Mets were the heavy underdog in the World Series against the 109-win Orioles. The O's were an older, more experienced club with most of the same personnel who had won a world championship in 1966. On a personal note, I talked about this Oriole team in my Boog Powell podcast. It was an awesome team with fantastic pitching, excellent hitting, and superb defense. For the record, the likes of Frank Robinson, Boog Powell, Brooks Robinson, the human vacuum cleaner, Paul Blair, and pitchers Mike Cuellar, Dave McNally, and Jim Palmer added up to an unbeatable-looking team. Many Mets fans at the time were just happy to have their team get to the World Series, and many thought they had no chance. But Orioles manager Earl Weaver was not convinced that this would be another four-game sweep for the Birds. He said in his autobiography, quote, I didn't think for a minute that the so-called Miracle Mets would be easy opponents in the series. Their pitching was too good, particularly that of Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman, unquote. 
Yet after one batter in Game 1, the skeptics appeared correct as Baltimore's Don Buford unleashed a home run to lead off the bottom of the first against Seaver. The Mets found themselves in worse trouble by the fourth inning when Seaver allowed four hits including a double to Buford to bring in three additional runs. The Mets, meanwhile, scored only one run against Baltimore starter Mike Cuellar, and the game ended in a 4-1 loss for the Mets. In an interview years later, Seaver was asked how this loss occurred. He said very honestly, quote, I'm not ashamed to say that I was as nervous as you can get. You forget everything and think you have to throw the ball 500 miles per hour. You've got the responsibility of the first game and you don't want to let your teammates down, but I pitched poorly. I was in the runway in Baltimore after coming out of the game. Clendenin is standing next to me and says, quote, You know what? We're going to beat these guys, unquote. And the Mets did come back and won the next two games, 2-1 two to one and 5 to nothing. The series now stood at two games to one in favor of the Mets. Game four was a rematch of the opener, with Cuellar and Seaver again facing off. Only now, the Mets had won two straight, and Seaver looked almost as good as he had against the Cubs in June. He threw eight shutout innings and held a one-run lead on Clendenin's second-inning home run. But the ninth inning was more of a nail-biter. With one out, Frank Robinson hit a single to left field. Boog Powell then singled to right field, advancing Frank Robinson to third. Brooks Robinson came to the plate and hit a wicked liner to right that, in a fantastic play, Ron Swoboda caught, limiting the damage to a game-tying sacrifice fly instead of a go-ahead triple. Despite losing the lead, manager Gil Hodges left Seaver in to pitch the 10th inning. In the bottom half of the 10th, Grody led off with a double against Dick Hall. Rod Gaspar was put in to pinch run. Pete Reichert was called from the bullpen to face the left-handed J.C. Martin, who batted for Seaver. Martin bunted to the right of the mound, and Reichert's throw glanced off Martin's wrist, then bounced into the outfield, allowing Gaspar to score from second base. Seaver got his only career World Series win, and the next day the Mets completed one of the most stunning world championships in history. Just one month shy of his 25th birthday, Tom Seaver was at the height of his game. He was a leader and motivator on a talented Mets team which, in its eighth National League season, defied all expectations. He led the league with 208 strikeouts and an outstanding 2.21 ERA. He won the National League Cy Young Award for the first time and the Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year Award. He is the only Met ever to win both these awards in the same season. He also finished a close second to Willie McCovey in the National League MVP voting, 265-243. to No previous Met had even gotten near the top 10. Seaver took part in a ticker tape parade described by the Wall Street Journal as a more colossal celebration than VE Day, Charles Lindbergh's flight, and the return of the Apollo astronauts all rolled into one. But Tom Terrific would do even better the next season. In 1970, he led the league with a 2.81 ERA and 283 strikeouts. In a game on April 22nd against the Padres, he struck out a then-record 19 batters including the last 10 he faced. This 10-in-a-row feat is still unmatched in the major leagues. Here's a quick quiz. The current strikeout record for a game now stands at 20. There are three pitchers who have 20 strikeouts in a game. Can you name one? I'll give you a second. Do you have a guess? It is current Nationals ace Max Scherzer, a favorite of both me and my son. Kerry Wood with the Cubs... 
and Roger Clemens, who did it twice for the Red Sox. Back to the Tom Seaver story. In 1971, Seaver had his best ever year statistically, setting personal marks with 289 strikeouts and an amazing 1.76 ERA to lead the National League in both categories. But his 20 wins were four behind Ferguson Jenkins' total, and the Cubs' ace took the Cy Young Award by 36 votes. New York's 1972 season was overshadowed by the death of Gil Hodges when he died of a heart attack after a round of golf during spring training. Seaver paid an eloquent tribute to his late manager, affirming that, quote, Gil is here inside each man and he will be here all season. The man made a terrific impact on this ball club, unquote. The Mets got a new manager, the great Yankee catcher Yogi Berra, and Seaver led the Mets staff with 21 wins and 249 strikeouts. In his first six seasons, from 1967 through 1972, Seaver led all National League pitchers with 116 wins and 1,404 strikeouts. Only the great Cardinal Bob Gibson's 2.42 ERA was better than Seaver's 2.44. If you haven't yet, please take a listen to my show on Bob Gibson. What an awesome pitcher he is. In 1973, Seaver became the first pitcher to win the National League Cy Young Award without winning 20 games. As was the case with his first Cy Young, it was evident to anyone associated with the Mets that he was indeed their franchise player. Off to a promising start, the Mets landed April on top of their division with a record of 12-8. However, the Mets stalled after injuries to key players Jerry Grody, Cleon Jones, Bud Harrelson, and even Willie Mays. By June 25th, the Mets were last in the division, eight and a half games behind the Cubs. Still, the second-place Montreal Expos were only two games ahead of the Mets. Seaver later remarked, quote, It was the kind of year that nobody seemed to want to win, unquote. The Mets entered July with a losing record, but so did four of their opponents in what became known as the, quote, National League Least, unquote. Mets fans despaired as their team posted a 32-49 and record from May through July. When rumors circulated that Barra would be fired, Chairman M. Donald Grant made a feeble attempt at rescuing his manager. He stated that Barra would not be fired, quote, unless public opinion demands it, unquote. How's that for support from your boss? The New York Post even conducted a poll that asked which Mets executive should be fired, Barra, Grant, or General Manager Bob Sheffing. Fortunately, Barra came out on top as only 611 of the more than 3,000 ballots cast found Barra to be the cause of the Mets' poor performance. But amid the despair, there was one bright hope. Number 41, Tom Terrific. After defeating the Phillies on opening day, Seaver's consistency led the rest of his team. When the Mets were 30-35, and 35, Seaver was 7-3. and three. In a three-week stretch of late May and early June, he was responsible for only four wins registered by the Mets. In one of those games, on May 29th, he struck out 16 San Francisco Giants and was named National League Player of the Week. When Barra rhetorically asked sports writer Terry Shore where the Mets would be without Seaver, the writer replied, quote, in last place with a 17-game losing streak and certainly out of any division race, unquote. The Mets remained in last place through late August, but in a clubhouse meeting, Grant ignited the team when he reminded his players that they could win their division if they believed in themselves. Tug McGraw's cry of, You gotta believe, rang through the clubhouse and became a rallying cry for the Mets the rest of the season. 
Yogi Berra also added his immortal phrase to Met's lore, It ain't over till it's over. Berra, Grant, McGraw, and company were right. The Mets surged in September, winning 21 of their last 29 games. On September 21st, Seaver defeated the Pirates to even the club's record at 77-77, and which in their mediocre division was good enough for first place. Seaver took the mound again on October 1st and defeated the Cubs 6-4 to win his 19th and final victory of the regular season and clinched the division title. Until the San Diego Padres won their division in 2005, no National League team finished first with a worse record than the 1973 Mets' 82-79 season. For his part, Seaver led the league with 251 strikeouts and a sterling 2.08 ERA. He completed 18 games, tying Steve Carlton for the league lead. Facing the Mets in the NLCS opener was the powerhouse Cincinnati Reds, winners of 17 more games than the Mets. They also had an 8-4 record against them during the season. Cincinnati, which had represented the National League in two of the previous three World Series, had a lineup like a modern-day murderer's row. Even if the Mets succeeded against Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, and rookie Dan Dreesen in one inning, they still had Tony Perez, Johnny Bench, and Ken Griffey do up the next inning. Facing Jack Billingham, Seaver struck out 13 and walked none in the NLCS opener. He helped his own cause by doubling in a run in the second inning. But the big red machine came back late in the game. Pete Rose tied it in the eighth with a home run, and Bench's ninth inning blast won the game 2-1. The Mets came right back from the disappointment and won the next day on John Matlack's two-hit shutout. The Mets took Game 3 at Shea Stadium despite a nasty brawl between Rose and Bud Harrelson. Seaver, along with Mays, Barra, Cleon Jones, and Rusty Staub, went out to left field to restore order after fans at Shea pelted Rose in left field with everything from paper cups to a whiskey bottle. The Mets won the game, but Rose exacted some revenge by homering to win Game 4 in 12 innings. The stage was set for a Seaver-Billingham rematch in the finale. In the first inning of Game 5, left fielder Ed Cranepool drove in two runs with a bases-loaded single for the Mets. The Reds struck back as Dreesen brought in Morgan in the third inning, while Rose scored to tie the game on a single by Perez in the fifth. Then the Mets blew it open with four runs in the fifth to send Billingham to the showers, with Willie Mays himself driving in the go-ahead run. Having already said goodbye to America at his retirement game, the 42-year-old Willie Mays, batting for Cranepool, collected a bases-loaded single to score Felix Mion. Seaver led off the sixth inning with a double and scored on a Cleon Jones single to give the Mets a 7-2 lead. Tug McGraw relieved Seaver, got the last two outs, and then ran for his life as Mets fans stormed the field. Following the win, Mets fans displayed banners that proclaimed, Rose is a weed, and this rose smells, marking the acrimonious victory over the otherwise superior Reds. Charlie Hustle, in his pugnacious way, compared the Mets and their fans to a flock of zoo animals, while manager Sparky Anderson expressed his dismay at their celebration that was more like a riot. Quote, I can't believe this could happen in this country, but then I'm not sure New York is part of this country. Unquote. Against all probability, the Mets were returning to the World Series for the second time in five years. On a personal note, I have one thing to add about baseball teams winning championships in general, and it is this. I will take great pitching over great hitting every time. In the previous year, 1972, 
the A's took the World Series from the Reds, a quote-unquote superior team. But the thing is, the Reds' pitching was at best just mediocre. And in a limited series, great pitching usually shuts down superior hitting. And we see that with the Mets' victory. Because the Reds still had the same mediocre pitching staff as the previous year against the A's. To me, the Mets' victory was not so surprising. And that will do it for part one of the Tom Seaver story. Next time, Three Strikes You're Out will feature part two of the Tom Seaver story. There is still lots more to go. See you in the bleachers. Special mentions go out to the following. I would like to thank YouTuber Mr. Runner Holly. Look him up for his permission to use his cover of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Special thanks go out to Maxwell Cates for a great article on Tom Seaver on the great baseball history resource, Sabre.org. Thank you, Mr. Cates. And also, if you want to contact me with comments or show ideas, please email me directly at matt at threestrikesyoureout.com or you can go to my website, threestrikesyoureout.com, click on the Contact Us button and submit your email there. I'd really like to hear from you. Thanks. <laughs>